Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we talk about political revolutions. We're going to do it in the United States, then France, then Haiti. So the question of the Reformation, as we discussed, was who gets to control knowledge? The question of the political revolutions, of the age of revolution, is who gets to control the state? Who gets to run the state? The traditional elites, the king, and the landed nobility, or new moneyed elites? Notice it's not the peasants, it's not the people. And we'll talk about why, but that's the question, is who's going to get to run the state? The political revolutions is a rejection of absolutism. Conservative revolutions will try to keep the king, but have him lose power. So even in states that don't go a full French revolution, the idea was England, for example, the king should have less power and moneyed elites should have more power. Liberal revolutions... French Revolution is the best example, is get rid of the king and create a new system. The American Revolution starts as a conservative revolution, gets liberal, goes back to being conservative. By the time you get to the Constitution being created, we're back to being a conservative change, a conservative revolution. So it goes in waves. In the beginning, it's a very conservative revolution. In fact, it's, it's kind of retrograde because it's the American revolutionary's argument in the beginning is all we want is our English rights that go back to Magna Carta, 10, you know, 12, 15. All we want is what we've always had. It's you the king and parliament that are revolutionary because you're changing the social contract. We just want what we always had. So the American Revolution is very conservative when it starts. It will get liberal. The Declaration of Independence is a liberal document. And then it gets conservative again. It will not get rid of slavery. It will not give... Uh, freedom and voting rights to all men. Soon it will, but not even in the beginning. Even all white men did not necessarily get uh, important voting rights. In fact, um, the Constitution tries to limit as many rights and powers to the people as possible. They don't get to vote for senators. Representatives only have a two-year term, which means they're always running for re-election, and they can't be in the Capitol, whether it's New York, Philadelphia, or Washington, too long. You know, you're out in Ohio, you're out in Kentucky, you got to physically walk or ride a horse to Washington. So that's going to take you some time. Then you have to legislate. Then you have to get back to run for re-election. You, you're not there all that long. Meanwhile, senators get six years. And the state elects them. 
until the 1820s, nobody even counted the popular popular vote. Nobody cared. Like, oh, let the people vote. Uh, yeah, who cares? It's not till the John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson problem blew up where Andrew Jackson quite visibly seemed to have won the popular vote and the Electoral College went for John Quincy Adams that changes had to be made. But there is, the, 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 as far as I know, I have tried to look it up. The, the official statistics from the National Archives on the first couple of elections is there is no popular vote. They just didn't record it. Well, um, this goes to something Stalin is supposed to have said, um, which is interesting to use Stalin as, as the quote. But he has a quote that says, um, it doesn't matter who votes in an election. It'll matter. It matters who counts the ballots. And that's the idea. If Great, people can vote, but if no one is counting who they voted for, who cares? What? That's not a that's that's not an important right, and so the American Revolution goes through changes. The people who are in charge at the beginning of the revolution are in charge at the end. So it's a conservative revolution. The big question is taxation without representation. Now, what Americans, modern Americans, like to fact, fast, um, concentrate on is the taxation, but it's not. Nobody is arguing that there should be no taxation. Nobody. It's the representation part. That's the argument. Nobody says the king doesn't have a right to tax. Nobody is arguing that people shouldn't, Americans shouldn't be taxed. In fact, with the revolution, their taxes are going to triple, quintuple. They would have been way better off having stayed in the English Empire if they didn't want to pay taxes. So it's about the representation part, the feeling that their will, their local will, wasn't being taken into account. The American Revolution is lock-made reality. It stretches the freedom of the individual. That's how we get to the liberal part. It's the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and originally property is right out of Locke. It, it just cribs Locke. It's second treaty on government. It is Locke made reality. Now notice they don't go with Hobbes. They don't think, think that Hobbes is right. That living in the wilderness and the, and the forest of America, the founding fathers, the, the early Americans, valued individual freedom. Now, you should understand that for half the founding fathers, that individual freedom was built on slave labor. Thomas Jefferson has a lot of time to read and invent stuff and build stuff and be a founding father because he had the massive wealth of slaves working for him. 
Madison as well, Washington as well. All of the Southerners, all of the Southerners, as far as I know, and if there's, there's, there's an exception, um, I'd like to know, but as far as I know, all of the Southerners at the, who signed the Declaration of Independence were slave owners. In fact, some of the Northerners might have been slave owners too. Slavery was still going on in the North. So there's a stress on individual freedom, freedom of the individual, very Lockean. You are awesome. You can do what you want. As long as you're not a black person or an Indian, then you're not really a person. Native American, I should say, but at the time they calling them Indians. Then the conservative revolution comes back because the Articles of Confederation didn't work and they create the Constitution and the Constitution is going to be heavily weighted towards elites. We are not a democracy. I know we use the word and people will, you know, I get people who argue on Twitter who are like, we're a representative democracy. No, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. You do not vote for laws. In a democracy, the assembly is sovereign. The will of the people is sovereign. You do not vote for laws. When the, when the Athenian democratic assembly gathered and they discussed, they discussed the rate of taxation. They discussed going to war. They discussed, nobody asked you if you wanted to go to war. You didn't vote if you wanted to go invade Iraq or Afghanistan. You might have written it on some comment on some newspaper, on some website. You might have written it on Facebook later on. Hey, we should go and you argue with your liberal friends about we should definitely go and kick Saddam Hussein's ass. But you, you had no say. You voted for the person who had the say. That's a republic. And the republic limits people's power. That's the whole point. You people are idiots. The founding fathers were rich men. All of them were rich men. There are none of them who are poor. Some of them are stunningly rich. Want to know who the richest, one of the richest men in America were? John Hancock. The guy who wrote his giant name. He's not going to write a little tiny name. He's, he's the Bill Gates of America. In 1776, he can't hide. The republic limits the power of the people. It doesn't trust the people. It keeps the hands in the elites. Look at the people who signed the Declaration of Independence. They're all wealthy. None of them are some poor farmer with two cows trying to make it in Vermont. That's not how it is. They were all the elites of their society, and they created a system that allowed them to maintain power. That's why you don't vote for your senators, because the state picked them. We don't want people voting. They'll vote for crazy-ass people. And they'll vote for crazy-ass reasons. They don't know how to understand treaties. In the Athenian assembly, they voted on treaties. You don't vote on a treaty. You did not vote on TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. 
You didn't vote for NAFTA, whether you liked it or not. No one asked you. No one cares. You elect somebody, and they make the laws. We are the Roman Republic. We are not an Athenian democracy. Just because you get to vote once a year, or if you own a house twice a year, does not make it a democracy. Democracy is where the assembly, the individual is sovereign. That's not us. And the Constitution makes sure that it's not us. Because it worried about crazy-ass stuff. It worries about democracy. The Founding Fathers don't like democracy. Because they worry that poor people are going to look at rich people and say, I want that stuff. Give me that stuff. And we're going to see that happen in the French Revolution. So, the American Revolution starts on these principles. And it ends very conservative. And you may, just to finish, I guess, with the idea is, so why don't we have a democracy? Why don't poor people demand it? Well, guess what they got? They got bought off. They got free land all the way to the Pacific. You might have to fight Native Americans, but we'll eventually send some cavalry out to help you. But you go west. You carve out your land, and you, will, and you work it, you own it. It's yours. It's free. Go. Don't bother us. The east is all built up. The East is all divided up. There's no great land in the East. But the, over the Appalachian, virgin territory. It's all yours. You'll be left alone. You do what you want. You make a local government. You get Kentucky. Congratulations. Go for it. And that's what happened. Poor people keep moving west. Because there's less institutions, there's less development, there's less rules and laws, there's less of everything. So elites don't want that. The elites don't want less of everything. The elites look it around and go, I've got everything. I'm living in Philadelphia. This is awesome. I'm not going to go out to Kentucky. Come on. Start over? That's crazy. And so poor people moved west. So, the French Revolution gets more radical from 1789 to 1815. So, it's, it's longer than the American Revolution. It starts conservative. The king needs to fix the problems and feed people in a famine. Fair enough, right? We think the same thing. The, 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 the king, the government needs to help people in trouble. Okay. That's very conservative. And if he can't do it, he's got to share power. If he can't do it on his own, which he apparently can't in 1789, he's got to share the power. And the nobility are saying, hey, we're the traditional people. You, the king, usurped power from us back in the day after under Louis XIV. You got to give some of that back. And then it turns liberal. Because the middle class 
gets involved. They're going to get screwed. They see the king and the nobility hobnobbing with canapes and and fancy cheeses, and they go, hey, what about us? And the king and the nobility laugh. Ah, who are you? And totally missed what was happening in their own society. Because the middle class says, hey, poor people, those rich guys are about to screw both of us. And poor people who are in the middle of a famine are like, wait, they're supposed to help us. Like, yeah, they're not going to do that. They're going to screw you and they're going to screw me. So we better join up and get rid of those guys. No king, no nobility. We're going to have a meritocracy. Now, to the middle classes, meritocracy means uh, it means the person best suited for the job should run the job. But that's not really what they mean. Like, the king is the best suited person to run the government because he's the king. He's been trained for this kind of thing from the moment he was born. The nobility has run government at the local level for a thousand years. They're also well-trained. They're educated. So what meritocracy really means is us, the middle class. Not poor people. Not poor people you, you don't get because you don't have any skills. It's us. It's us middle classes. We have jobs, we have businesses, we've got some money, we've got some education. And you know what? We outnumber you. So we should get the role. So meritocracy is the job should go to the most qualified person. But that's not really how it works or how they meant it. The middle class basically is saying we should get rid of the king, we should get rid of the nobility, and we should let the middle class, ordinary people, have those great jobs. Instead of being a job by, you got it because you were born to a certain person. So we're going to get the rights of man, the rights of women, citizens, not peasants. People stopped calling them. They started calling themselves citizen. Walked around. That was their title. Because it was about equality and then liberty and then brotherhood. We are all French. We all, and the thing that makes us French is we don't have a king with power over us. We can run ourselves. This is Rousseauian. This is getting to Rousseau kind of stuff. This is kumbaya, you know, far out liberal change. And then chaos happens. Chaos happens. The terror who leads the people? See, why, why? Why does it get chaotic? Well, the more liberal it gets, the more people it takes rights away from, nobility and king, and gives rights to, the more there's a counter-revolutionary. The more there are people who go, whoa, well, hold on a minute. That's a little far. Maybe we shouldn't change everything. And what you get is a definition that they're traitors. They're against the revolution. By people like Robespierre who are in charge of revolution. So the question is, who do you define as a counter-revolutionary? And the answer is, whoever can be defined as a counter-revolutionary. And the more liberal 
that the French Revolution got, the more people get defined as counter-revolutionaries, which means we have to get rid of them. They're traitors, which means that we end up getting more liberal because no one wants to be executed by the guillotine. I'll give you a perfectly good example. That's, and this is made up, but it's a good example. So we're going to have an assembly. We're going to get together. We're going to be a democracy. We're going to get together, and I am going to stand up. And you know what the peasants want? The peasants want land. They want their own farms. They don't want to work for the nobility anymore. And every peasant should get 50 acres. There's plenty of land. We'll take the large estates, break them up, give every head, every man, head of a family, 50 acres. That's about with a couple of horses and a mule and then some oxen. That's what you can work. Like, you can't really work more than 50 acres in 17, 1800. So there's no re reason to have it more than that. Yeah, you farm it. It gives you enough food for the year, a little bit to sell off. You can leave some of it fallow to regenerate during the year, and you could fertilize it. It's great. 50 acres is probably wonderful. Makes total sense. It's scientifically the right number. We're the age of men. Science. Math. 50 acres. What does the assembly say? The assembly goes, Woo! 50 acres! Woo! That's amazing! Woo! And then Joey gets up. No. Billy gets up. Billy gets up. And Billy gets up and goes, Hi, I'm Billy. And I think everyone should have a hundred acres. And everyone looks at Billy and they go, hundred acres? That's double the 50 acres. And they go, woo, hundred acres. We should all have a hundred acres. Woo. And I go, wait, wait, wait. That doesn't make any sense. You can't farm a hundred acres. You can't use 100 acres. Like, it would just go to waste. We could give more people. If you have 100 acres, half the people who would have gotten 50 acres won't get any, any land. And then Billy goes, Hi, I'm Billy. And you don't love the people. You don't want them to have 100 acres. You are a counter-revolutionary. You're a traitor to the revolution. Uh-oh. So what do I do? I could be arrested as a traitor. I've got an assembly of people. They're going to grab me and then ship me off to the guillotine. Or I say, 100 acres, please, man. 200 acres. And the nobility... And all the nobility... The nobility are like, wait, what? Who? Huh? There's not even that much land in France. And 200 acres. And the assembly, the peasants in the assembly go, whoa, I'm getting rich. 200 acres, that's awesome. 
I'm going to be a king. And Billy, you're the counter-revolutionary. Do you see how liberal we got? We went from 50 acres to 100 acres to 200 acres. And now Billy's the counter-revolutionary. Take him away. Arrest him. Arrest Billy. No, no. 300 acres, 700 acres, a billion acres to the people. And so the revolution, the terror, and it was called the terror at the time. The terror against the counter-revolutionaries was, but who gets to be, who is a counter-revolutionary? And so what happens is the revolution begins to eat itself. The people who, like in America, the men who started the revolution, almost all the men who, and it's men, not women, who signed the Declaration of Independence are there at the end. Some will pass away, some will die in the revolution, but for the most part, they're there. They're still important. That's not true in the French Revolution. The leaders in 1789 get churned by the terror, by the chaos, and by the guillotine. Marat, Robespierre, the leaders in 1789, by 1792, definitely by 1795, are gone. They've been executed or exiled, if they were lucky. The new invention of the guillotine industrialized murder. For the first time, murder became industrialized. Because before, you had to literally chop off a guy's head. It took some skill, it took some time, and it took a sharp axe. Now we're killing counter-revolutionaries, and we have... 500 counter-revolutionaries in a line. Like, dude, this is going to take a long time and people are going to get bored. Like the first couple guys who get their head cut off, woo, woo, woo. And then like the third guy and the fourth guy, like, ah. And then the axe starts to get a little dull and it takes a couple whacks to go all the way through. And people are like, yeah, I got, I wanted to eat lunch. I don't, yeah, ew. You know? And here comes Dr. Guillotine. Who looks at this and goes, this is horrible. We shouldn't be torturing these people. If only we could commit, create a humane way of executing people. Because they're traitors to the revolution. So they deserve to die. But at the same time, we shouldn't have to whack them six times to get their head off. Because that's a little much. And he invents the guillotine. Which did exactly what he wanted it to do. It made... Murder, easy. But in making murder easy for the person who is getting murdered, and more importantly, for the murderer, because now you don't actually have to whack a guy's head off, a machine does it for you, 500 people, now you're talking 20 minutes. I mean, it might be more, but that means we have hours left in the day. We can, we can execute lots more people. And the very fact that the that the guillotine was big and had to be built in public, in the public sphere, was 10, 15 feet tall. When it wasn't being used, it was obvious it wasn't being used. And the question becomes, why did we build this thing if we're not going to use it? Why aren't you, find, why aren't you finding counter-revolutionaries? You must be a counter-revolutionary protecting other counter-revolutionaries. And so the revolution eats itself. 
what happens is war happens. War to spread the revolution. War to protect the revolution. In 1792, France is invaded by Austria and Prussia. Why? Because the Austrians and the Prussian elites are married into and related to the French elites. They don't marry regular people. They marry other elites. And so people, the, the nobility who's fleeing France, they're coming in like, hey, brother-in-law, you won't believe what our peasants are doing. They're murdering everybody. They're burning stuff down. They're giving everybody 200 acres of land, and they're coming for you. What if your peasants think hear about this? And the nobility in Austria and the nobility in Prussia freaked out. They went, whoa, if our peasants learn about freedom and land redistribution, we're in trouble. And so they got their kingly armies to invade France in order to put the king back on the throne, which means other countries were counter-revolutionaries, which made sense. They were more conservative. The French reaction is twofold. One is we have to build an army to protect France. And two, we have to invade other people and spread the revolution. The only thing that will protect the revolution is if we free all other peasants. So war is going to spread the revolution. The goal is to free other peasants, to give them the same rights we have, to make them citizens. And that invents a new method of warfare called the levee in masse. Everything. The idea of the levee in masse is that all the people and all the energy of the state will be poured into the military. I think it's something like 85% by 1805 of the budget is being poured into the military. Basically, you're working, if you're an adult man in his late 20s, early 30s, you're either in the army or working for an industry that supports the army. The Leve, L-E-V-E-E-N-E-N, Mass, M-A-S-S-E. The other thing is, not only will we spread the revolution, we'll make other people pay for it, like Mexico and the wall. The idea is, we'll conquer parts of Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, and then we'll take their money, and that will pay for the army, so that we don't have to raise taxes on, on French peasants. And people will love it because they get freedom. It turns out they didn't love it. They liked the freedom part. They didn't like the occupation and, and having to pay French people money part. Having their banks, their money, their, their homes looted. So the French Revolution, while popular in France and initially popular in many parts of Europe... turns sour as freedom becomes occupation. The French came in claiming they were bringing freedom, but what they really brought was occupation and looting. Um, we see this with Beethoven's Third Symphony. Beethoven's Third Symphony was originally about Napoleon. And he was so disgusted about Napoleon, he crossed out, crossed out the, the title and made a new title, the Eroica. He he just he went right through the paper. He was so mad at Napoleon because Napoleon to him um, was replacing the the promise of freedom in the French Revolution with military dictatorship. 
And Beethoven is not French. He's German, Austrian. But at this point, he's German-speaking, so... Um, so there's the occupation, not freedom. There's also conservatism. England, Russia, Spain, Austria, Prussia are effectively don't want to change that much. They look in horror at what is happening in France. And the result is the largest wars fought certainly since 1648, maybe since the Punic Wars. Everyone is involved in this. It is going to spread from Moscow to Portugal. It is, it is a European-wide war. So everyone is going to be sucked into the wars of the French Revolution. And um, in the end, France loses and conservatism wins. And we get Edmund Burke, B-U-R-K-E, who basically takes on the Hobbesian idea that you don't revolt, you shouldn't change, radical change is bad for societies. And Edmund Burke is going to be the father of conservatism. And it's the idea that you not to go back. He's not arguing to go back, but he's change should be slow. Things are fine the way they are. Yeah, maybe there's a couple things that need to be fixed, but they're small. And so change should be slow. Where the French Revolution went change today, now, immediately, yesterday. Conservatism was not about going back to some idyllic time. That's not what they wanted. That's not what Edmund arguing about. He does not want to go back to an absolute monarch. He's, a, he's in Parliament. But he doesn't want the radical changes that is the French Revolution. Too much change to him equaled chaos. So change should be slow. That brings us to the Haitian Revolution from 1791 to 1804. The Haitian Revolution asks the question, does the alignment apply to black slash African peoples, to slaves? Can black people be European and civilized? Does the ideas of Europe apply to black people in the new world? And the answer is yes. Yes. It should at least. It does. Haiti was one of the wealthiest colonies in the world. It was French-owned. And people got stupid rich on this little places trade. Now, that may stun you because Haiti today is one of the poorest countries. Or it is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and it's one of the poorest countries in the world. But in 1750, it's one of the wealthiest colonies it created perhaps 30% of France's profits. It made 60% of the world's coffee, 40% of France's French sugar. But look at our demographics. We have 32,000 whites, the owner class, the elites, the government, the local government. We got 28,000 mulattoes, mixed race people, mostly white, 
mixed white and black, white and African, European and African, maybe a little bit of white and um, indigenous peoples. But for the most part, um, indigenous peoples in the Caribbean died out. But there's bound to be some. And slaves, 452,000. More than 10 times the number of whites. The French Revolution comes along in 1789, talking about equality and liberty and fraternity. Equality, liberty, and brotherhood. That we are all Frenchmen. We are all the same. We all have rights. Well, guess what? Haitian slaves heard that and said, hey, that applies to me. And there's a revolt and they win. Mostly because there's 10 to 1. You can't own 10 people to every one person. It simply doesn't work. It's too many people. After a revolution that overthrows, a quick revolution that overthrows the white um, government, the white planting class, and then a um, brief war between different factions over who would run Haiti, and then a war of independence to defeat a French army that's sent to reclaim Haiti, Haiti wins its independence. It becomes the first black-led modern state. And is the second state to win independence. So we're not talking a kingdom like in Africa. We're not talking uh, an empire, a tribal empire, a kingdom. We're talking it looks like a European state. It acts like a European state. It is a modern country in every sense of the word. So... But this freaked out slave owners everywhere else. Just as the French Revolution in freeing the peasants and giving them equal rights freaked out people, nobility in Europe who had peasants, who worried what, what would their peasants do? Everyone who owned slaves looked at Haiti and went, oh... What if our slaves hear about this? And of course they're going to hear about this. It freaks out slave owners everywhere else. In the Caribbean, in Brazil, and especially in North America. Racism. Black people are inferior. They can't really be European. Plus fear. They're going to murder us in our sleep. This is the fear of all slave owners. And you go, well, what? Why is that the fear? Well, because I, think about it. I have to go to sleep. At some point, I have to go to sleep. I have to bathe. I have to take a shower. And I've got a cook. I've got a chef who's still awake because he's cleaning up, who has to have, in order to make myself some nice steak, some big knives, a large axe. 
He's going to cook me my steak. He's got to kill the cow. Needs the axe. He's got to then carve it up. Big old knives. And he has to know how to use them. If he could carve up a cow, what could he do to a person? And so there's always this fear of the slaves, the slave revolt. This is John Brown and Nat Turner in, in, in um, the American South. These are small things. They're not big. They're a few people, a dozen people. And yet it gets blown to be the most important thing that ever happened. You know. So what the result is is punishment. Haiti might be free. But we don't have to acknowledge it. We don't have to help it. And so Haiti fails. Haiti as a country fails. Why? Because countries need the support of other countries. The United States is not the United States unless France helps us. It just isn't. If France doesn't join the revolution, something like 80 to 90% of all guns... used in the American Revolution were from France. They're not American-made weapons. So some gun rights advocates will argue, if we didn't have guns, we wouldn't have won our independence. Uh, we got our guns from France. The guns that you used in 1775 that you used to shoot squirrels with don't help you fight the British. In a military, they're not military weapons. It's not the same thing. You don't take a 22 rifle and go fight off the shelf and go fight the Taliban with it. It doesn't work. Bad things happen. So French support. That cost them, the cost of the French government. One of the reasons the French government goes bankrupt is because of all the money it gave us so that we would become independent. And then we start trading back with the British, so we, we were of no help to the French at all. Um, but countries need other countries. And they need to be recognized by other countries. And they need the economic support of other countries. So what they got, what Haiti got, was rejection embargo. And the problem for that was its money came from sugar and coffee. It had to sell that somewhere. It made 60% of the world's coffee. It needed to sell that somewhere and there was nowhere to sell it. And so you got economic collapse. What does this tell us? It tells us that racism was stronger than the Enlightenment. That the Enlightenment was about freedom and equality, but not for black people. That racism in America and in Europe was stronger than the ideas of the Enlightenment. And for all the talk about brotherhood and liberty and fraternity, it didn't apply. If black people can make a country and that country is successful, then maybe their people and not machines, and not slaves. And if they're people, 
then the entire system I participate in that uses them as a machine would be wrong and I would be a terrible person. And I'm not a terrible person. And all I want to do is have a nice house and money and nice clothes. But I don't actually want to do the work in the fields because that sucks. And I wouldn't make as much money if I had to do it myself. So black people can't be people. Um, that allows me to keep my money, keep my status, and keep my sense of self as a good person if black people are not people. So racism was stronger than the Enlightenment. We had our chance to end racism. And just like with Las Casas, just like with the start of slavery in 1500, people looked at the amount of money they were making and said, yeah, I got to keep racism. They had the chance. Europeans, Americans, the Enlightenment gave everyone the opportunity to say black people are people. We shouldn't have slaves. We should incorporate them into the body politic. And they said, no, there's too much money to be made. There's too much status to keep. So what does Haiti prove? To be successful, you need the support of other countries. If you don't have that, and you're on your own, you are going to need education, money, infrastructure, bureaucracies. You are going to need to create all of the systems from scratch, which is not easy to do, and it requires a lot of money. C part three of our course where we talk about 20th century decolonization in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East and all the wars and all the civil wars and all the fighting that's going to happen. So the Enlightenment Project is to be continued. Thank you. So to sum up Liberalism, from 1800 to 1848, it fails. 1848 is the year of the liberal revolution. It fails everywhere. Liberalism failed. France goes from a king to a democracy to a republic to an emperor back to a king. And then back to a republic in the 18, what, 30s? And then back to another emperor. So, In 1848, it was the year of the liberal revolution, and it failed everywhere. Conservative governments and armies equaled social control. They, countries would even help each other in order to maintain. Like Austria and Prussia invaded France in 1792. Other countries would invade each other in 1848 to put down their revolutions. They try to limit the influence of the French Revolution and nationalism. But the idea is there. If the French could do it, why can't we? So you get Prussia, and after 1871, a united Germany. Austria and Russia, 
are all emperors of multinational empires, and they have a problem with the French Revolution because the French Revolution said, I am special because I'm French. Well, if I have 15 different ethnic groups in my empire and they all say they're special, I don't have an empire. That's a problem. If everyone is special, then there is no empire. Only Britain increases democracy, increases liberalism. Whereas France swings wildly from conservative with its emperors to liberal with its new republics, Britain slowly, methodically, Edmund Burke-esque allows for change. And you increasingly get democracy. Now, remember, Britain's not a democracy. It's a parliamentary monarchy. It's not a republic either. But the idea was more people should vote. Universal male suffrage. We're going to give the right from people who could afford to pay, who, were, who could afford to be important, to um, everybody, to workers. And Britain is the only major state to not have a major liberal revolt in 1848. I want to say Sweden doesn't either, but I'm, I actually don't know. I don't know the 19th, mid-19th century Sweden as much. They have problems because uh, there's Norway and Finland going on. They lose Finland, they gain Norway. Norway's like, hey, why am I part of Sweden now? It's a bit of a mess. Um, but Britain gets universal male suffrage. You get a conservative liberalism, slow change that helps poor people. That having seen the French Revolution, then having fought against the French Revolution and Napoleon, what British conservatives see is we don't want this to happen. We're going to have to change and we're going to have to give rights, give help to poor people. Otherwise, poor people revolt and will murder all the rich people. Like, in 1788, it was good to be rich in France. In 1791, you were on your way to the guillotine. 1792, 1793. You were a rich dude, you either had to give away all your money and say, I love the revolution, I love poor people. Or you were going to be arrested as a counter-revolutionary and sent to the guillotine. You're going to get a quarter-inch space between your neck and your shoulders. That's not a good thing. In fact, because Britain was a parliamentary system, you could get new parties. And the Labour Party, L-A-B-O-U-R, is created specifically to represent poor people. Why? Well, we're going to give poor people the right to vote. But we have two parties, Tories and the Whigs, that represent elites. They don't represent poor people. Neither one represents poor people. They represent the elites. And so the Labor Party says, ah, hey, poor people vote, and there's a lot of them. We're going to give stuff to poor people. Vote for us. And poor people said, yeah. That's why it's called labor. It's for the laboring man. Because gentlemen, the elites, don't work. The definition of a gentleman is a man who didn't labor, who didn't work. 
they ruled. They didn't work. And so here comes the Labor Party representing the laborers. We're going to represent poor people against Tories who represent conservative elites. And that's, in many ways, the system we have today. Britain will continue. Britain has multiple parties um, because of their parliamentary system. But it's still conservatives versus labor. It's the two big parties. And then there are the other people other parties, a liberal party and, and the such. The results of the revolutions. Why do they matter? Well, what do they tell us? And what they tell us is that people matter and can act to make their lives better. And that was the big question. Do people matter? Can they make their own government? That was the question of the Enlightenment. And the re- revolutions say, yes, they can. Slaves can free themselves. They don't need a great emancipator. They are their own emancipators. Poor people can demand rights and win them. You can make your own government and decide your own rules. You don't, you don't have to be tied to an ancient system. Two, enlightenment ideas have power. Freedom and democracy can move people. You read... Thomas Paine you read some of what Marat writes the idea of the nation of freedom, of equality matters look at the French flag, right? it's the three bars to represent equality, fraternity, and liberty not in that order, I'm sure but we'll look at most countries' flags in the world they're the same, they're three bars The American flag is weird. The British flag is weird. They stand out. They're unique. Because most people's flags represent these ideals. Freedom or democracy. Three. Conservative violence to stop change was met with progressive violence. We saw this in... In... um, Last year, in 2017, in Virginia, when uh, a couple hundred Nazis, white supremacists, white nationalists, did a march through um, the University of Virginia, through, um, through a Robert E. Lee statue. So Nazis are, white nationalists are conservatives. They're, they're as far to the right as you can go. So they're, they're marching with their tiki torches. They're shouting out anti-minority, anti-Jewish, anti-liberal stuff. And what happened? Is progressives showed up. And progressives countermarched. And you had fights between the two groups. That conservative violence to try to stop the French Revolution, attack by Austria and Prussia, made the French Revolution defend itself and then counterattack. That conservative violence was met with progressive violence. That people, having been given rights, were not going to lose those rights. 2% of Americans died in the American Revolution. 2%. That is a massive amount. 
if you ever watch um, the the TV show, it was on HBO. The um, it's not Left Behind. The Leftovers. There was a show on HBO in which 2% of the world's population disappeared and the entire world is traumatized by it. Oh my God! What happened to these people? The rapture happened, it only took 2%. The entire world is traumatized. Well, that's America. 2% of people, of the Americans in, living in America died during the American Revolution. And it started with the British conservative violence attacking Boston. That was then met with liberal progressive violence as the American colonies made their own army to counter the British army and you got a war. The French Revolution equaled terror and millions dead. An entire continent at war. The French Revolution, the wars of Napoleon are the great war until the First World War happens. It made even the Great War look small. Like, people talk, uh, uh, did you fight in the Great War? Of course you fought. If you were a certain age, of course you fought in the Great War. And, that was, and when you said the Great War, it meant the Napoleonic Wars. And four, the revolution does not apply to everyone. Women doesn't apply to. Even the French Revolution starts with rights to women, brings them back. The Napoleonic Code gets rid of most of those rights to women and makes them... Um, subservient to men legally uh, Africans and blacks nope immigrants and workers nope didn't apply women blacks immigrants workers it doesn't apply now what's important is it will imply uh, apply when Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal, he meant a certain person. He meant a man who is white, land-owning, and Protestant. Preferably English, but some Germans could be included in that. And what will happen? That definition will change of what is a man in America. Catholics will be included. Non-British Europeans will be included. First the Irish, later the Italians. First the Germans, I should say, then the Irish, then the Italians will be included. Women will be included. African slaves will be freed and then included, then incorporated. that the Enlightenment gave power, gave language to people demanding rights. And, he's, and basically their argument was very simple. You have, we want what you have. And that is hard in the Enlightenment to argue against. How do I stop you from, I have freedom. Why shouldn't you want freedom? The Enlightenment doesn't have a counter-argument. Even Edmund Burke doesn't have a great counter-argument. He's the father of conservatism, and he's like, yeah, it's just we don't know what the ramifications are, but I can't really argue with that. You should have rights, so we'll give it slowly. 
And so it will be another century before those groups are able to absorb all of their rights. And there is a fair argument right now as we are talking that these groups, these marginalized groups are still not part, full members of the body politic. That the rights still don't, 150 years later, still don't apply. Or 200 years later, still don't apply to everybody. So, you know, we are in the moment in America right now in 2017 where we have the Me Too, anti-sexual harassment, anti-sexual assault argument by women who say, this is keeping me from being a full citizen. I am not treated as a full citizen because of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and gender discrimination. We have Black Lives Matter, which is the same argument that we are being, we have been mistreated because we are not equal to white people. And we should be. Our lives matter just as much as white people's lives matter. And we should be treated that way. And we have DACA, we have uh, President Trump wanting to build or arguing that he's going to build a wall to keep out immigrants. We are talking about right now in the winter of 2017, massive discussions about uh, immigration policy. Who can come in? Who gets to be an American? Who should the American idea apply to? Does it apply to brown people? Does it apply to new brown people? It applies to white people. And whether or not it it acts the way it should, it applies to black people. It applies to some brown people. Like if you're Mexican and you've been here 400 years, you were in Texas when Texas became a state, you're an American. Whether or not you're always treated that way by other Americans, by especially white Americans, is a different story. But you are as American, you're more American than most Americans, most white Americans. Puerto Ricans are American. And so the question is, who, but what about Bangladeshis? Iraqis, Syrian refugees, can they be American? Uh, African immigrants, can they be American? South American, Brazilians, can they? At the moment, that is the great question. And America, especially in the 20th century, kept changing its mind over who could and who could not. White people always could. But even then, the definition of who was white changed. When my Irish ancestors showed up, they were not white. When my Italian ancestors showed up, they were not white. They were not American. They were foreigners. And they became white, mostly by participating in a war, but they became white and became accepted. And so here I am, a professor of history, being able to talk about this stuff as a white American, fully conscious of my privilege of being able to do that and knowing that two generations earlier, 
that wasn't true. And five generations earlier than that, it wasn't true. And so here we are in 2017 in the great demand. That's still the demand of enlightenment ideas. That I am an individual, I have rights, I have freedoms, and I am an equal to you. And that's where we'll end. Thank you. <laughs>